0: But if the economy is the number one issue to voters, then there is one party that will have an incentive to make it better. And that party is the one that has the presidency, the Democrats. The other side, the Republicans have an explicit incentive to make the economy worse. And I will tell you, having covered the Tea Party Congress of 2011, amidst the recovery from the financial crisis, I feel confident in predicting that if Republicans win control of one or both houses of Congress, they will do everything in their power... To sabotage the economy. To best set them up to retake the White House in 2024. Yes, they will. And they've got a plan for that.
1: Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling there's something right. know it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left me, Jokers to the right
0: Here I am stuck in the middle with you Yep From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles This is the Bradcast As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM People-powered radio in LA Also in California In Red Bluff and Redding On KFOI Round Mountains KKRN And Eureka's KGOE Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, and Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR and Minneapolis-St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdon Square Radio and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us. Of course, your mileage may vary when it comes to the... Swell portion of me there. Hey, Desi Doyne, how are you doing today? I am
2: doing okay. All right.
0: Well, it is not just democracy at stake in the upcoming midterm elections. Norm Ornstein of the American Enterprise Institute argued recently at The Atlantic describing what is likely to happen to the American economy and indeed the global economy along with it if Republicans win either chamber of Congress next month. The longtime congressional historian and political scientist will join us shortly to explain his concerns. But as we've been noting, uh, with with less than three weeks now until the year's critical midterms, the pre-election polls, as expected, have been tightening in recent days. And at the same time. Democratic voter turnout in early voting in a whole bunch of states has reportedly exceeded numbers in comparison to this point in 2018, the last midterm elections, when Democrats ultimately saw a blue wave. Albeit during the presidency of Donald Trump, when the party out of the White House generally does much better in midterm elections. At this point, I think it's safe to say we're looking at a jump ball for control of both the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate next year. It could absolutely go either way. Though Republicans have been favored by most forecasters to take a majority in the House, while Democrats have been favored to hold on to control of the Senate in general. We've discussed quite a bit what Democrats can do if they are able to hold the House and add two seats to their Senate majority. On Tuesday, Joe Biden promised, for example, he would codify into federal law the privacy rights and reproductive freedoms of Roe v. Wade that were stolen by our corrupt U.S. Supreme Court if he is given a House majority and a Senate majority large enough to reform the filibuster in January, next January, in order to do it. He said it would be the first bill that he sends to Congress this January, if so. We've also discussed how, with the ability to reform the filibuster, Democrats could finally, finally pass the much-needed Freedom to Vote Act before the 2024 presidential election, and they could even expand the size of the corrupted, stolen, and packed U.S. Supreme Court to uncorrupt, unsteal, and unpack it. But what if Democrats fail to win those majorities this year? What do Republicans promise to do if, for example, as many expect, they win back a majority in the U.S. House? Well, TPM's Kate Riga this week looked at what Republicans, in their own words, have promised to do, beginning with investigations and then some more investigations. It would be Benghazi on steroids over and over, Riga reports. Hunter Biden alone could spawn multiple hearings as Republicans and the Fox News apparatus that supports them have become singularly fixated on Joe Biden's son. Quote, we're not investigating Hunter Biden for political reasons, said (laughs) Republican Congressman James Comer of Kentucky. He told that to Time magazine this month. We're investigating Hunter Biden because we believe he's a national security threat. Okay, Comer is poised to chair the House Oversight Committee in the event of a GOP flip. And then he added, uh, sort of saying the quiet part out loud here, quote, the Hunter Biden investigation is slowly becoming the Joe Biden investigation. Uh Aha. See how that works? Yep. Republicans have also said they'll investigate Dr. Anthony Fauci for some reason. Biden's immigration policies, the pullout from Afghanistan, the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic, the causes of inflation. The January 6th committee. Yes, they're going to investigate the bipartisan committee investigating Donald Trump's insurrection at the Capitol. And, of course, they will investigate evidence-free claims of voter fraud in the 2020 election. That will all be fun, I'm sure. And totally what the American taxpayer is uh, is clamoring for at this time, right? Republicans have also been mulling impeaching Joe Biden for something. For what? Don't know. They'll come up with something. Of course they will. And they have been vowing to do so even before Joe Biden became the Democratic nominee for president, much less becoming the president. Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa said in February of 2020, quote, I think this door of impeachable whatever has been opened, referencing conspiracy theories about Biden's supposed role in the ousting of Ukraine's then top prosecutor, Victor Shokin, due to what both the Obama administration and the EU Considered to be extraordinary corruption by Shokin. Georgia's Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, you've heard of her. She introduced articles of impeachment related to that same uh, conspiracy theory the day after Joe Biden was inaugurated. Congresswoman Nancy Mace, Republican of South Carolina, said just last month on NBC, quote, I believe there's a lot of pressure on Republicans to have that vote on impeachment. Senator Ted Cruz of Texas said on his podcast last winter that a Republican House would likely impeach Biden, quote, whether it is justified or not, unquote. Well, that will be fun, though. I suspect if they actually do it, it will not turn out well for them in 2024, at least if the absurdly politicized GOP impeachment of Bill Clinton. Remember that back in the day? If that was any indication of how things would go for Republicans, because after that, Democrats went on to win by huge numbers in the subsequent midterm elections where the Republicans normally would have won with a Democrat in the White House. Republicans have also frequently named Department of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas as another likely target for impeachment for some reason. Of course, it only takes a simple majority of House members to impeach, but two-thirds of the Senate is required to convict and remove from office. Even if Republicans took over both chambers, notes Riga, it's basically unthinkable that they would take enough Senate seats to to actually remove Biden or a cabinet member from office, at least barring some actual very grave crime. They also would introduce and pass, at least in the House, a bevy of culture war bills. Yay! Those would, of course, be dead on arrival in the Senate, but they would be useful for teeing up a 2024 presidential election, because at this point, that's what Republicans have, the culture war, the culture war that they are waging and, frankly, that they invented. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy of California, currently uh, predicted to be elected as House Speaker if Republicans take back a majority in the House. So, frankly, I wouldn't put a whole lot of money on that yet. As far as uh, him being named as House Speaker, I'm not entirely sure that uh, the Republicans will choose him, but we'll see. Uh, he has, in the meantime, published what he calls the GOP's Commitment to America. Now, it's pretty vague, but it offers some pretty direct clues worth noting in its promise to, quote, defend fairness by ensuring that only women can compete in women's sports. Well, that's critical. Thank God someone's finally brave enough to take that on. (laughs) And, uh, quote, uphold free speech, protect the lives of unborn children and their mothers. Yes, that would be their plan to pass a law to ban abortion rights in all 50 states to guarantee religious freedom and safeguard the Second Amendment. The House's far-right Republican Study Committee's uh, proposal, their proposed budget, they have more. They decry, quote, woke politics in the military, naming a slate of anti-abortion bills and decrying, quote, discrimination towards people who oppose same-sex marriage. They're worried about discrimination against people who are against marriage equality.
2: Against discrimination against people who want to discriminate against those who have same-sex marriages. Something
0: like that, yeah. So this is the sort of thing we can look forward to. But it gets worse. In the case of a split Congress, for example, where Republicans control the House and Democrats control the Senate, which is still, at least if you believe the pre-election polls, that's still the most likely outcome of the November midterms. Republicans would be largely stymied in that case legislatively. They could pass a whole lot of stuff in the House with a simple majority, but that stuff would go nowhere in the Democratic-controlled Senate. But Republicans would also be able to indulge in their favorite and most dangerous political game— most dangerous, in any event, in recent years, at least when they control one house of Congress and a Democrat occupies the the, uh, the Oval Office, namely taking the global economy the global economy hostage to extort political concessions from whichever Democrat happens to be in the Oval Office. In this case, Joe Biden, by threatening to force America to default on its bills. The tactic was first used in earnest by Tea Party Republicans back in 2011. The party has warmed to it ever since. Each time, Republican members say that they uh, won't suspend or raise the debt ceiling, threatening to let the U.S. default on its debts, which would almost certainly trigger a global financial crisis. In exchange for relinquishing that hostage, they demand that Democrats then give them what they want, whatever that may be. Concerns about the national debt conveniently, by the way, fell by the wayside entirely during the Trump administration. They didn't care about the debt, the deficit or anything else when Republicans happily raised the debt ceiling without any problems at all, without any complaints or hostage taking. Three times they did that over those four years.
2: And they also gave the rich and the corporations a massive tax cut,
0: which is why the debt ceiling largely needed to be raised. They uh, they ran up federal deficits by the trillions of dollars. Thanks to those huge tax cuts for corporations and the wealthy and also huge increases in military spending. But this time they promised to demand cuts to wildly popular social safety net programs, including Medicare and Social Security. This is A position so staggeringly unpopular with voters that it may explain why they didn't attempt to enact those cuts during the two years that they had unified control under then President Donald Trump. Quote, entitlements are going to consume the budget, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina said recently on Fox News, adding, entitlement reform is a must. The Republican Study Committee released its budget this summer. They elaborated on those very priorities, calling for raising the age of eligibility for both Medicare and Social Security and encouraging increased means testing for Medicare. Right now, anyone 65 years of age or older gets Medicare. It also contemplates reducing payroll taxes that fund Social Security, instead redirecting that money to private alternatives. Yes, they complain that Social Security is running out of money, so they plan now, I guess, to defund it further and, yes, privatize
2: it? Well, yeah, force you to pay fees to Wall Street and, and get it from a private company instead.
0: Duh. Separately, uh, Senator Rick Scott of Florida, who chairs the National Republican Senatorial Committee, he released his so-called plan to rescue America, calling for uh, quote All federal legislation, which includes Medicare and Social Security, to sunset every five years unless Congress reauthorizes it every five years. Senator Ron Johnson, Republican from Wisconsin, who's currently in a pretty much dead heat battle for reelection. Against Wisconsin's Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, Johnson has also floated funding the two programs, Social Security and Medicare, through the annual budget rather than letting the spending be automatically dispersed as it is now. Yes, Ron Johnson wants there to be a debate about approving Medicare and Social Security every single year in Congress. The Republican study budget also goes after SNAP, formerly known as food stamps. It would eliminate the community eligibility provision from the school lunch program, which allows schools in low-income areas to provide free lunches to all students. These are not things that Democrats fear Republicans want to do or might do. These are things that Republicans have said through their own words or documents or actions or congressional caucuses that they will do. Or at least they want to do if they regain control of the House and or the Senate. And while uh, they're welcome to push for any policy they like, no matter how unpopular it might be, using the debt ceiling to demand these policies Uh, That's an entirely different realm of of threats that uh, both, uh, you know, threats to both the U.S. and the global economy in ways that, frankly, remain unimaginable. Should they finally pull that trigger after so many years of threatening to do this, of using this hostage taking technique to try and win concessions, policy concessions? But again, only when a Democrat is in the White House, of course. Could they really do it this time? Would they? Or, as they did in 2011, would they just push it up to the absolute limit before reaching a full default? And if so, what would the real-world fallout actually be? Norm Ornstein, who has been covering Congress as an historian for more than four decades now, seems very concerned about what may happen this time with these Republicans. And Norm joins us next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman.
2: The Republicans are loud and clear about this. They've already said, for example, that they will use the debt ceiling negotiations. You know, we've got to raise the debt ceiling so that we can meet the obligations of the United States of America. And there are already Republicans saying, hey, if they can get control of the House or the Senate, then they're going to hold hostage things like Social Security and Medicare. Remember... Uh, Ron Johnson, for example, who's running in Wisconsin, said we ought to vote every year on whether to keep Social Security and Medicare. So they want to be able to use these kind of levers to blow up our economy.
0: That's exactly what they want to do. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. That was Senator Elizabeth Warren recently on MSNBC. But in 2011, as noted recently by the in The Atlantic by congressional historian Norm Ornstein, the then-new House Republican majority, egged on by Eric Cantor and some guy named Kevin McCarthy and led by radical Tea Party rightists, such as Jason Chaffetz, brought the U.S. to the brink of financial default. The disaster in 2011 was headed off by a last-minute compromise between Speaker John Boehner, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, and President Barack Obama. A breach of the debt ceiling, meaning the loss of the full faith and credit of the United States, would have been catastrophic, Norm writes. But Chaffetz and many of his colleagues were more than willing to make that happen. In the aftermath, Chaffetz said, quote, we weren't kidding around. We would have taken it down. Well, they didn't. But even as it was, their brinksmanship and delays had severe effects. The Dow fell 2,000 points in the months that followed their hostage taking threat and borrowing costs for the federal government increased by billions of dollars in the bargain, according to the Bipartisan Policy Center. Chaffetz is now long gone from the House, but the Tea Party radicals, who a few years later became the so-called Freedom Caucus, have moved from the fringe to the center among House Republicans. And if Republicans capture a majority in next month's midterm election, they will make the Tea Party group look like milk-toast moderates, Ornstein argues. The prospect of default, yes, default of the U.S. government for the first time in history to be able to pay its bills because Republicans disallow the federal government from lifting the limit on how much it may borrow to pay for stuff that it has already bought – stuff that was already approved by both Congress and the president, along with extended government shutdowns and disruptions and hamstrung and a hamstrung administration. That, notes Ornstein, will loom very large if Republicans take back the House. And while I have mentioned it previously, I think it's worth repeating. Despite increasing the federal deficit By trillions of dollars during the Trump administration, Congress approved raising the debt limit, the debt ceiling, three different times during those four years without a peep, without a complaint or any hostages taken, much less shot. But of course, now that a Democrat occupies the Oval Office again, Republicans appear to be set to pretend that they're concerned about deficits and to at least threaten to bring down not only the U.S. economy, but the global economy along with it. Joining us now, once again, is longtime congressional historian and political scientist Norm Ornstein, a senior fellow emeritus at the American Enterprise Institute. He's also author of many books, including most recently, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism, With Thomas Mann and One Nation After Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate and the not yet deported. Norm is also a contributing editor and columnist for The Atlantic, where he wrote last week asking how far would a Republican majority go as it is not only democracy itself at stake this fall. Dr. Ornstein, welcome back to the broadcast, my friend. Great, it's great to be with you, Brad. Norm, you uh, wrote uh, at the, in that article at the Atlantic, a quote: If Republicans win control of the House of Representatives, the country will face a series of fundamental challenges much greater than we have had in any modern period of divided government, including a direct and palpable threat of default and government shutdown. What are your fears? And as an historian, why do you think they will be quote much greater than what we have seen in the past?
3: So, Brad, what we've seen in the past, to take the last part first,
0: Mm -hmm.
3: is that even where we had reckless behavior, reckless, in some cases, leadership, including from the likes of uh, Eric Cantor and Kevin McCarthy Mm -hmm. back in 2011, uh, there were grown-ups in the room who kept it from getting out of control, Mm. and the atmosphere was at least a little bit different, where they could command at least some followers. We're in a different world now. Uh, We're in a world that has been influenced on the Republican side significantly by Donald Trump. Trump didn't create this mess and this dysfunction. He's an accelerant, but he's an important one. Mm. In the past, we still had what we could think of as a political party, even as it began to go downhill But now it's a full-blown cult. And the willingness of new members coming in, joining with a lot of radical members who will be returning, to blow the whole thing up, the lack of interest in fundamental institutions or in the need to be responsible at governance, it's astonishing. Mm. And what we see now is a Republican Party in the House to start with, Mm where any of those figures who tried to stay within the bounds, the norms of common behavior, including the fraction, the dozen or so, who voted, for example, to impeach Donald Trump in the aftermath of a violent insurrection where their own lives were threatened, Mm -hmm. they're all going to be gone. Mm. They've either been defeated in primaries or redistricted out of office or basically Decided that enough was enough. And the new ones coming in, in contest after contest, where Republican voters had a choice between somebody who is at least somewhere near the bounds of normality mm-hmm. and somebody far outside it, they've gone for the latter. Now, put that together with another reality, which is if the Republicans capture a majority in the House,
1: uh-huh.
3: it is very, very likely that Kevin McCarthy would be the Speaker. I have never, in 50-plus years of being immersed in the institution, seen a weaker or more pathetic leader Mm -hmm. than Kevin McCarthy. And the idea that he would stop them from mayhem is, at this point... Uh, not
0: believable. Well, let me ask you. Yeah, you cite in your piece the, uh, the GOP primary elections to sort of buttress your case that Republicans had the choice and this is who they chose, these more, you know, radical right wingers. Um, but let me ask you about a couple of different scenarios there. If many of those candidates that those, uh, Republican voters chose, if many of them lose for in their uh, races for the Senate, as had looked likely several weeks ago, uh, it's more of a jump ball now, but if Republicans take back a House majority but fail to win back the Senate, which should have been easy in a year like this, um, w- will that help in any way to put the brakes on these House Republicans that you're so worried about?
3: Look, let's face it. If the Republicans captured both houses, Mm-hmm. It is an even bigger nightmare for Joe Biden and for the country. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the biggest reason there is that if Republicans have the Senate, they not only have control of the committees and the agenda, uh, but they control the nomination confirmation process. Right. So we've already seen uh, Mitch McConnell basically say that If a Supreme Court vacancy occurred uh, and the Republicans had the Senate, Joe Biden is president, they would not allow him to fill that seat. We know that there are going to be lots of vacancies in lower federal courts, courts of appeals, district Mm -hmm. courts, and we've already seen those uh, courts stacked with Trumpists. None of those would happen. And then there's another big problem that emerges, which is, in a presidential term of four years, after two years, a lot of the people you have put into positions of policy influence, mm-hmm. cabinet and sub-cabinet offices, heads of agencies and the like, leave. These are demanding jobs. Mm-hmm. Now, if you've done things well, you've got others waiting in the wings who have been nominated and confirmed for you know positions below them. Mm-hmm you have an undersecretary who leaves, you've got an assistant secretary who can move up, and so on. Uh, It's not that the uh, Biden administration, in part because of Republican obstruction, uh, has managed to fill all of those positions, but even if you do, when these vacancies occur... A Republican Senate is going to either slow walk or kill the nominations you want to make and get confirmed, mm-hmm. and that means you're going to have a huge problem carrying out your own policies. You may have agencies where none of the people chosen by the president are there in the office to help you carry out your policies. But So the headaches become that much greater.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: But if Democrats hold the Senate, even if they can add a couple of seats mm-hmm. to it, mm-hmm. And the Republicans win the House. The main point that I made in my piece, other than the fact that these are uh, uh, radicals mm-hmm. uh, dominating the party, is that they can't pass legislation on their own. Right. They can't uh, impeach and convict and remove from office the officials they would want to, including the President and uh, the uh, Attorney General and the uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, among many others. Mm-hmm. But They have two powers here. One is they can drive you absolutely crazy (laughs) with investigations, subpoenas, and other things that just give you headaches. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can go back at the hearing after hearing after hearing on Benghazi uh, during uh, the previous administration, Obama administration that uh, took up enormous time and effort uh, from uh, the Secretary of State and others. Uh, but at the same time you can use the power of the purse you can block funding Mm -hmm. and they've already indicated among other things that they're likely to block additional funding for aid to ukraine we have a republican party that sides more with vladimir putin than it does with forces for freedom Mm -hmm. uh, another of the big changes that we've seen and that could be catastrophic and at the same time We've already had large numbers of their members uh, looking eagerly forward to a government shutdown if they don't get their way. And, of course, along with that function and the power of the purse, the ability to basically refuse to provide the funding necessary to keep government running, is the debt ceiling. (laughs) And, and that's catastrophic in and of itself.
0: And that's really where it seems to me. I mean, this is different from a, a government shutdown, for example, where, you know, the parties can't agree on an, on an annual budget and, you know, before the deadline for the government running out of funds to pay for Social Security checks or executive uh, branch agencies and so forth. But the debt ceiling it seems to me is different for people that may not understand uh, because in truth it's it's sort of arcane and in fact it actually doesn't make any sense. Norm, uh, can you explain what the debt ceiling actually is and why we even have such a thing? Most most nations do not have such a thing, correct?
3: Uh, uh, nearly every other significant nation has no. Comparable mechanism. Uh-huh. Now, the idea that you have a debt ceiling was put in place to try and bring about fiscal discipline, that you only add to your debt by explicitly agreeing to do so. When you have spending, you have to raise the debt ceiling. Now, if you look back over history, in our lifetimes especially, the parties play games with this because it's an easy target. If the other party holds the presidency, you can say, We're not going to vote for increasing the debt ceiling because we believe in fiscal discipline. Uh, But the reality is that the leaders of both parties understood that, yeah, you could play some political games, but in the end you're going to find a way to make sure that you don't default. Mm -hmm. Um, As I mentioned in the piece and as you mentioned in your opening, we came close to having that breached in 2011 and the consequences of even coming close were pretty severe. Mm -hmm. But now um, it's a different matter. Now, you know, you do this to bring about discipline. It doesn't work in any event. What ends up happening is you pass the budget that you're going to pass. If it adds to the debt, um, uh, that's just the reality of where it is. And periodically um, you're going to end up, in the world in which we live, where you're not going to be completely debt-free with the ceiling being reached. And you have to find mechanisms to be able to get around that. The best thing to do is uh, is to do as every other country does and eliminate this. Ridiculous
0: device. Because we're not really talking about it. Doesn't actually lower the deficit if you refuse to raise the ceiling. This is stuff we have already paid for. This is just uh, getting the approval essentially to borrow the money to pay for the stuff that we already bought. It, does, it seems like it wasn't until that moment in history that, that you cite uh, Norm Ornstein in, in 2011 where it really became a matter of brinkmanship. That, uh, am I right? Is, is that the first time that yes. they had driven it that far?
3: It's, it is the first time that they've driven it that far. I should note that yeah. there was a very brief period, done not through malevolence or even because somebody uh, triggered it, mm-hmm. but just through um, a, a sort of small comedy of errors, mm-hmm. that for a very brief period, less than a day during the Carter administration, we breached the debt ceiling. Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, I mean, we're 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 talking <laughs> minutes, right. uh, hours, nothing, right? And it was not done deliberately. Uh-huh. But when people look back at that, it turned out it was quite costly. Just even that alone raised mm. interest rates enough that. The borrowing costs of the federal government went up. It's a huge government, and there was a big cost. This time in 2011, even though we didn't breach the debt ceiling, mm-hmm. we came close enough and people realized the danger enough that it also triggered uh, an increase in interest rates. And, uh, you know, experts calculated over the next several years that just getting close cost about $19 billion. So imagine if we actually move into default, and the consequences, by the way, are not just for the United States. Right. They're for every country that holds dollars, yep. uh, and they're for the global uh, economy as well.
0: And, and yet you said, uh, when I asked you about it, you said, well, the difference was in, in 2011 there were adults in the room uh, to keep the worst-case scenario from happening. One of those adults was then Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. But in to, uh, 2011, you you quote him as saying, uh, quote, I think some of our members may have thought the default issue – Was a hostage you might take a chance at shooting. Most of us didn't think that. What we did learn is this, however, it's a hostage worth ransoming. In other words, uh, well, they're not actually going to do it, but hey, they don't mind running it up to the line if necessary, I guess, to win concessions somehow. That was one of the adults. I mean, if if he if he's willing to at least uh, you know threaten to shoot the hostages, and he was the adult, this is very uh, alarming, Norm. Yeah, very
3: <laughs> very alarming. Uh, and, you know, Brad, I'm not a big fan of Mitch McConnell, as you probably know. Uh-huh. I'm high up on his enemies list, right? Um, of which I'm actually quite proud. <laughs> McConnell basically pulled back because. He knew that it would hurt Republicans,
1: Mm -hmm.
3: and I think at least a part of him knew that it would be extremely damaging to the country as a whole. I'm not sure that under every circumstance he would feel the same way. Uh, I refer to him often as uh, a ruthless pragmatist. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he was able to control his own Senate Republicans on this front as well. And now it's a question of whether Kevin McCarthy would be able to pull back from the brink. Both of them were very happy to use, to play games with the debt ceiling to try and accomplish some of their goals. This time around, the goals that House Republicans want to accomplish uh, are all demands that could simply not be met. You know, it's likely to include dramatic cuts in spending, including a commitment uh, to. Uh, move to private accounts or to at least slash uh, the spending for Medicare, uh, Social Security, and Medicaid. Um, it's likely to include demands that uh, the Attorney General Merrick Garland, uh, the Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas, uh, and possibly the President himself resign. It's likely to include cutting off that aid to Ukraine. And uh, probably a wish list of other things, none of which could be acceptable, and you just have a lot larger number of uh, Jason Chaffetz's, mm-hmm. uh, or Jason Chaffetz types, that will be in this next house. You know, just to put it into perspective, Brad, uh, we we know that uh, 538.com, the statistical site... Mm-hmm. Um, pointed out a few weeks ago that uh, a uh, 128 House Republican candidates who have a 95% plus chance of winning election, mm-hmm. in other words, we're going to get them in the House,
1: mm-hmm.
3: are election deniers. Yeah. And the fact that they're election deniers, we can take to another level. If you're an election denier, you're a radical person. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't believe in institutions or due process uh, or the regular order. Uh, and that's going to mean a significant majority of the Republicans in the House, even if they win quite narrowly. 218 makes a majority. Yep. 126 is you know a lot more than a simple majority. Mm-hmm. And... The idea, if anybody's watched Kevin McCarthy, that he would be able, even if he tried, to rein them in when they decide that they have something they really, really, really want to accomplish, and that would include blowing up the government or rein them in in terms of uh, rescinding their demands. That's not Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, he will preside over chaos. Yeah, and that's why uh, it's imperative. That Congress, if Republicans do win a majority on November 8th, um, during the period from then till the new Congress convenes on January 3rd, have to get together and take this issue of the debt ceiling off the table permanently.
0: And I want to ask you about that in our uh, l- last few minutes here. But before I do, Norm, uh, did, was would you say that uh, then-President Obama made a mistake by essentially negotiating with, with those terrorists back in 2011? Uh, because it was after that... Uh, You noted the Dow plummeted. The credit rating was lowered. U.S. credit rating was lowered for the first time. Uh, The Obama administration said that they would simply refuse any negotiations on the debt ceiling. They weren't even going to talk about it. Surely Joe Biden learned from that as well. He was vice president at the time. Uh, I mean, will these threats by Republicans actually have any effect this time around with Joe Biden? Or will he just say, no, this is not negotiable. We're not going to talk about it, period.
3: I'm sure that Biden will say it's not negotiable, but if you're the president, you also have the responsibility to try and keep the country from uh, falling into economic turmoil and chaos. Mm. So, to some degree, you're going to have to talk to the leaders, at least, and try and find an acceptable way out of this. But the best way to handle it is to make sure you deal with it before it blows up in your face again. Right. And... As I mentioned, to me, by far the best way to deal with it is, uh, it's an irony, uh-huh. uh, uh, the ironically named McConnell rule. In mm-hmm. fact, what McConnell did pragmatically to get out of this in a one-time way was to change the way that this is dealt with. The debt ceiling requires now a separate action by Congress. They could incorporate it into a reconciliation package. They could incorporate it into the appropriations bills. Both houses have to pass it. The president signed it to increase the debt ceiling. What McConnell did was to say here's how we're going to work this the president will unilaterally raise the debt ceiling by whatever amount uh, the president choo- chooses. Mm-hmm. And then Congress can pass a joint resolution. Both houses would have to act with majorities. Mm-hmm. To block that action, Mm -hmm. but a joint resolution can be vetoed, Uh and that means all the president would need is one-third plus one of the members (laughs) of one of the two houses. Right. So, effectively, the blame goes to the president, not to the president's party overall, Uh but uh, the president, every president, would be perfectly happy to take that one on. Right. Uh, But you would have pretty much a guarantee that you could do this without any hostage-taking, without any direct threat of going into default. Now, I believe that they can do that through reconciliation, a new reconciliation bill that they could do in the lame duck. Mm -hmm. I think part of the reason they haven't done it up to now is the fear that the parliamentarian would turn it down. My guess is that if we are in a position where it's pretty clear that if you don't act, We will end up in default. The parliamentarian would work to find ways to make uh, instituting the McConnell rule and making it permanent uh, easier to do, uh, possible to do. And then we wash our hands of it. Now, there's another way of doing this. Paul Krugman (laughs) of the New York Times pointed this out the other day, and that is basically to uh, say, okay, we're just going to raise the debt ceiling by So many trillions that will take us at least all the way through uh, the uh, Biden administration. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm much more uneasy about that because you're then requiring your own members of Congress to uh, green light trillions of dollars in additional debt. And Mm -hmm. that would make them extraordinarily vulnerable. And they're not likely mm. to accept that. They're much less likely to accept something like that.
0: Even, even if now, they do something... The other
3: preferable way to do it, frankly, is simply to abolish the idea that you need to raise the debt ceiling, that it goes up automatically when you vote for spending.
0: And, and can't they... Uh, but is the problem there that that cannot be done via reconciliation? Yes, no. that's the problem. So you'd have to get Demo- uh, uh, Republicans to uh you have to, to get agree. 10
3: Republicans willing to go along with that in the Senate maybe that's something that you could do in a lame duck if they're jolted enough into realizing what the consequences would be if uh-huh. they don't. But I sure wouldn't want to count on that.
0: And even if you raised it uh, by something ridiculous, not just a few trillion, but you said the debt ceiling shall be uh, $100 quadrillion from here yeah. on out. It would be so ridiculous, but it would you know, take this off the table. Would it be just ridiculous enough that nobody would actually use this against Democrats in the future, or would they absolutely use that against Democrats?
3: They're absolutely going to use it against Democrats, (laughs) of course. All right. Uh, And, you know, you you have to look at what you could actually get through, Uh actually get done, and we're not going to get that done.
0: So it sounds kind of like the McConnell rule or it's going to be a uh, very dark uh, Christmas. Actually, it won't be Do we know when, the, uh, when we actually next hit the debt ceiling at, uh, at the current rate?
3: Um, no, it's, uh, they've, it's something that I think gets us through into next year. And we also have to keep in mind that if you reach a technical level, there are still all kinds of techniques that the Treasury Department can mm-hmm. use to put it off. Uh,
0: but only for so long. There are limits
3: to that. Yeah. We're probably talking about you know, the first several months of 2023,
0: mm-hmm.
3: and uh, that's not good enough.
0: No, it is not. Of course, there's another option. Americans can give the uh, uh, Democrats uh, majorities once again in both chambers of Congress, and that would forestall this madness, well, at least another two years. Norm yeah. Ornstein, uh, thank you, sir, for all you do. You can read uh, Norm's article. I will link to it, of course, over at TheAtlantic.com. You can and should follow him on Twitter at Norm Ornstein. Dr. Ornstein, sir, always great speaking with you, my friend. Uh, the same with you, Brad. Thank you, sir. Okay. Uh, again, <clears throat> America could just vote. To give the Democrats the majority, and we avoid all of this crap. Yeah,
2: I think it's important for people Just underscoring that point. Yeah, for people to understand just how critical that vote in November is going to be, because there is the very real prospect of tanking, of Republicans choosing to try to tank the U.S. economy and the global economy. And I just have to say, it infuriates me Uh beyond belief Uh to know Uh that these... Uh, promised cuts that they would like to use the debt ceiling to, you know, extract uh, concessions on Social Security and Medicare. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are your earned benefits. You paid into those programs your entire working life, and Republicans are going to literally try to steal that from you, especially for anybody born after 1978, when they decide to, if they can, raise the threshold for eligibility. That you know, to to the age of 70. I mean, millennials and uh, Gen Z voters ought to know that this is going to harm them. They really need to vote in November in order to protect their own retirement later on.
0: Well, what's additionally maddening about it is they want to tank the whole world to make their dumb point, and uh, they think it's going to hurt Democrats rather than hurt Republicans. I'm not so sure about that. Anyway... Just another reason to uh, make sure you vote this year. Make sure everyone else, you know, does as well. All right. As long as we were, uh, by the way, somewhat I- into the uh, congressional history mode today, let me, let's take a quick break here. We'll come back with a story from a new book by an old senator about a sort of creepy but fascinating spy story, really, from back during the Iraq war years, or at least. ...in the moments leading up to it. That's next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast... But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks.
4: And the spice came out of the water. Yeah, kind of. feeling so bad
0: Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Senator Patrick Leahy, Democrat from Vermont. He is the longest-serving member of the U.S. Senate. Uh, Not the oldest, but the longest-serving member of the Senate and the third in line in the presidential succession chain. He was discharged from the hospital last Friday after an overnight stay, according to his office, the 82-year-old senator, and he's just a child compared to 89-year-old uh,
2: Chuck, Grassley. Uh, Chuck
0: Grassley from Iowa, yeah who's running for re-election, uh, the 82-year-old Leahy was taken to the hospital last week as a, quote, precaution on Thursday evening after he felt unwell and he stayed overnight for tests and observations at the recommendation of doctors. Uh, his office called the overnight stay uneventful, said the Senate, senator would spend the weekend in Vermont. No further details were then disclosed about his health or the tests that were performed, etc. He had broken his hip earlier this year during a fall at his home. Uh, he was admitted to the hospital for emergency surgery at the time. Well, Leahy announced last year that he would retire Unlike Grassley, he would retire after eight terms in the upper chamber. His Vermont seat will be filled in this year's midterm elections. Vermont House of Representatives uh, Congressman Peter Welch, an eight term Democrat. He's running for Leahy's seat in the Senate against Republican Gerald Malloy. Welch is seen as almost certain to win uh, and to become the junior senator with Vermont's uh, Bernie Sanders next year. But there was a fascinating story from Leahy's new book that was shared over the weekend by Vermont journalist and historian Garrett M. Graff. I think it'll be of interest to folks uh, old enough to recall the phony claims made by the George W. Bush administration way back after 9-11 about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq phony claims that were used to lie the American people into that horrific war, for which, by the way, the world is still paying an extraordinarily unspeakable price. As Graf writes in his Twitter thread, In Senator Leahy's new memoir, he says there's a wild story in it that I haven't seen before, a rare glimpse into the shadowy way that the intel agencies interact with members of Congress. It feels ripped from a political thriller movie. In the midst of the Iraq War debate, notes Graff, Leahy was one of the few senators pushing back against the Bush administration's race to war and the threats of WMDs. He'd been reading the classified intel that the Bush administration was providing to Congress and had real doubts that it justified war. Spoiler, it didn't. The Sunday after he read the intel, he was walking with his wife in his McLean, uh, Virginia neighborhood when, quote, two fit joggers trailed behind us. They stopped and asked what I thought of the intelligence briefings I'd been getting. The joggers asked Leahy if the briefers had shown him, quote, file eight. Leahy writes, he says it was obvious from the look on my face that I had not seen such a file. They suggested I should and that I might find it interesting. Leahy went back to the intel officers at the Capitol skiff and requested file eight, and it contradicted what the Bush administration was saying publicly about the WMDs. A few days later, Leahy and his wife were out walking in the neighborhood again, and the same two joggers pass by, stop, and say, basically, quote, We heard you read File 8. Isn't it interesting? Now you should ask for File 12. Hmm. Uh, he uh, graphs says uh, Leahy explained to me when I asked him about the incident this month that file eight and file twelve are actually pseudonyms for specific secret code word names of files that the joggers told him to ask for. But the next day, Leahy again goes to the Capitol Skiff and he asks for file twelve. It again contradicts what Vice President Dick Cheney was saying publicly. Leahy decided then to vote against the war based on those secret reports and tips. Garrett Graff says, I asked Senator Leahy about this incident when I interviewed him uh, earlier this month, if he knew the joggers ever. And he said, you don't understand. I didn't want to know who they were. (laughs) Too long, didn't read. Leahy ends up voting against the war because some corner of the intel world tracked where he was, where he was out exercising, and intercepted him and pointed him towards secret intelligence reports. Anyway, uh, Garrett Graff notes, uh, Senator Leahy's memoir is really good. He says, one question I have after this story, he said, I assume Leahy wasn't the only targeted senator, that it might be worth asking other senators who voted against the war, did they also get visits from similar joggers? Fascinating historic story there. A little creepy, but uh, fascinating.
2: Yeah. And and not only to ask other senators who opposed the war if they also got similar tips, I wonder if any... Of the Republicans who supported the war got any of those tips and did not vote against it. Well, I was going
0: to say, or did they get uh, the false tips? Did Mm. they get the false crap that uh, Bush and Cheney were selling at the time, uh, you know, claiming falsely that Iraq had WMDs and we just had to go to war against them? Anyway, fascinating story. Thought you'd be interested. I know I would, but now we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Norm Ornstein of The Atlantic, and of course the American Enterprise Institute, and to all of you, kind enough to, uh, generous enough to spend a portion of your day or night with us to listen to our program. If you missed any portion of it or any other... You can download all of them anytime for free at bradblog.com. We have no pay, uh, paywall for either our show downloads or reading anything at Bradblog over our past nearly 20 years, all of which is made possible thanks to, yes, listeners like you who hit the donate button when they visit or just go straight to bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me an email. If you like, I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the TheBradBlog. We will see you there until we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.
4: And the spies came out of the water. you feeling so bad. Hide out in every corner But you can't touch them no. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 2013. That was the day that two workers on California's Bay Area Rapid Transit, or BART as it is more commonly called, were struck and killed by a train. Christopher Shepard was a BART track engineer. Lawrence Daniels was a contract employee. Both men had years of experience working on the tracks. They were inspecting the tracks when they were hit and killed. Workers who usually operated the trains were out on strike. The Amalgamated Transit Union Local 1555 and SEIU Local 1021 had walked off the job the day before. The strike disrupted the daily commute of 400,000 Bay Area travelers. The unions were on strike for improved wages and safer working conditions. The union wanted bulletproof glass for station agent booths for worker safety. They also asked for improved lighting in the tunnels. According to an article in Mother Jones, quote, a BART spokesman called the safety issues a smokescreen, arguing that contract negotiations were not the place to raise them. In response to the strike, BART was training a replacement worker to run the train when the tragedy occurred. The manager, who was supposed to monitor the unexperienced driver, had left the car. In addition, the National Transportation Safety Board found that BART had no way for workers on the tracks to communicate with the drivers. The family of Lawrence Daniels sued BART, which settled for $300,000. The union and BART settled the strike two days after the tragic deaths. The union won nearly a 16% pay raise. The union also won safety upgrades. But management won concessions on employee contributions to medical benefits and pensions. Labor History in Two, brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin